keep us moving here. And uh, this is the third of the churches in the book of Revelation that are mentioned of the seven. Uh, and the, the title of the lesson is The Sword versus the Serpent. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. The church at Pergamum. The human body is remarkably adaptable. Uh, one unique feature is our, abilities, our body's ability to tolerate pain. For some people, it's, that ability is more than others. Uh, and you can actually teach yourself to tolerate greater and greater degrees of pain. I don't know if you've seen these guys walk across coals, hot-burning coals, or lay on a bed of nails. I, I guess you can actually teach yourself uh, to take more and more pains if you do it slowly in slow doses and increase the pain. Uh, but unfortunately, pain medications do the same thing in our body. Uh, and the relief that they give is a wonderful help, but if they are taken too frequently and close together, our body becomes tolerant of the drug, and so the doses must be increased in strength and frequency in order to continue helping. So the frequent exposure can dull our response until it's withdrawn, and then, oh, the pain, <laughs> once we were withdrawn from the medication. So sin can be like this. Constant, frequent exposure to sin can make us less sensitive to the true nature until we are very comfortable tolerating sin, even in our own lives. And we may be unaware of sin until the Holy Spirit withdraws and then, oh, the pain. Because now we're on our own with our sin. So one of the true great dangers in the, to the church and the believer is that of tolerance of sin in our lives and the compromising heart with, uh, with this world. And, and none of us should think ourselves above what can happen because Jesus said, in the end times, even the very elect will be deceived. So we need to be careful that we don't get too arrogant. You know, and that was one of the problems that we'll see in, in uh, the, the, uh, the church at Laodicea when we do our study, the first study next year. <laughs> because we won't get to that church this year. So, and that is the church of the end times. And a church can survive many vicious at attacks. It seems that when we're being attacked, we're more vigilant. And we're more ready. And, uh, but that slow, gradual slide toward the world, though, can sometimes go unnoticed. You know, and that's what we need to be careful of. There, it's like the old man who sold, who sold apple butter and cottage cheese at a farmer's market. And every day he carried two large drums, one with cottage cheese and one with apple butter. And he would uh, scoop them out into smaller containers for the customers who were requesting one or the other, perhaps both. But... One day he forgot to take two ladles, and so he used the same ladle to dip into the apple butter that he used to dip into the cottage cheese, and later people were coming back and saying, my cottage cheese tasted like apple butter, or they came back and said, my apple butter tasted like cottage cheese. So by scooping both with one ladle, he managed to contaminate both. They weren't getting what they asked for. So we are asked to have one heart for God. We are asked to have one heart for God. To scoop our joys from the world and mix that with God's provision is to simply compromise 
the witness and the uniqueness of his kingdom, and it pollutes us. When we try to mix in the things of this world, it will pollute us. So the Bible teaches us that we are to carefully guard our hearts from the world's pollution. Uh, Trying to mix Christianity with worldliness will only contaminate the gospel of grace. And tolerating sin in our life will surely lead to spiritual ineffectiveness. So let's look first at the commendation that we see for the church there at Pergamum. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So, the city of Pergamum is still in existence today. Today it goes uh, by the name of Bergama, and it's in, of course, Turkey. Uh, And the name means citadel, uh, fortress, place of safety. And while Ephesus and Smyrna reigned as commercial capitals and were known for their trade guilds and uh, for the work that they did, uh, in, commercially speaking, Pergamum was like the Washington, D.C. of that area. And so uh, it was the political capital. And we know where all the politicians, when they all get together, we know what happens. Good things, right? Well, it wasn't any different back then. <laughs> we know the corruption in Rome uh, from our history. And it was also well known, though, as, as we talked about earlier, for its medical and educational prowess. It had a large and very prominent temple uh, to the god Asclepius. Uh, he was the cult god of healing. And we said earlier, remember, that it was symbolized by a serpent around a staff. You remember that? And uh, anybody familiar with that symbol? I, I, we, I know the, the Phillips are with Dr. Phillips uh, being a doctor, but we still see that symbol being used today. The serpent wrapped around uh, the staff uh, at medical facilities and in, in uh, different, uh, different ways. I think I've even seen on prescription bottles, perhaps. But people with all kinds of ailments flocked to the temple grounds and waited for the priests to mingle through the crowds with their magical cures. Uh, a large library, we also mentioned there uh, in Pergamum. In fact, the word parchment comes from the root name of this city. Remember, these weren't books like we, you know, like what we're thinking of today. I, I, didn't bring, I didn't bring my Bible. Oh, that's terrible. Um, no, I don't. I was just going to hold up a book. <laughs> they were parchments. They were scrolls. And this library, thank you, Tab. This library had over 200,000 parchments or scrolls in, in the library. Uh, um, Anthony, Anthony had sent this entire library to Egypt as a gift to Cleopatra. So uh, it was a, a very large library. Uh, the governor of Asia resided here. He was the official champion of justice and also the leader of emperor worship. He had as a symbol, when we mentioned this earlier, uh, a symbol claimed in Latin, Ius Gladi, the right of the sword. The power to execute anyone at will was within his power. 
And his authority by the symbol of this sword gave him absolute authority. And emperor worship was nothing more, of course, than worship of man himself. And that's what Jesus was warning in his warning to this church. The pressures to compromise as a Christian were enormous. For a Christian to live in this political city where the compromise of ethics was common was very tough. And you can imagine what it is like in, in, in uh, a political type setting. The, think of this, uh, the everybody does it to get by mentality was common. Uh, that's just the way it is, was a, a strong way of looking at it. Or if you're honest, you'll, uh, they'll take you to the cleaners mentality. And it was even invading the church. You know, what goes around, what's going on around us has a tendency to... to uh, penetrate through the walls of the church because we come from the outside we come from the world into the church it's no wonder that some of those things come but how do we deal with them so it was getting hard to be a real christian and that's what uh dr jeremiah our dr jeremiah (laughs) has been talking about in james um how to how uh to be a real christian no matter where in town you went you were rubbing shoulders with immorality It was tough to be a Christian. Uh, But to their credit, they're commended by the Lord uh, for holding firm. Uh, The seeds of decay were already existing in the church and that pressure of compromise, but they were still holding firm. So, uh, oh, I forgot to put up the first point there was the situation. That was the situation in the church at Pergamum. But then we see also the sword. That's mentioned here. So in comparison to the governor's sword. Again, when Jesus is talking to the churches, he uses these great illustrations. Well, the governor had the sword. So he's going to talk about his sword. And he says his sword is two-edged. It's a better sword. It has greater authority even than the governor who wields a sword. And can even, uh, as we said, execute people at his will. Two-edged meant it, cut, it would cut in both directions. An edge to cut away the unwanted stuff, an edge to destroy enemies with. with. And so uh, the, it was, the analogy there of two edges meant to heal and to hurt. So the two-edged sword uh, of that day was the largest and the longest and the most feared of offensive weapons in the sword family. And Jesus was making a clear statement here up front to a people who knew about the authority of the sword because they lived in the political capital. And Jesus is saying to them, forget about these politicians. My authority is greatest. And just to to drop back to a little bit of our review, we realize that this is not the Jesus who came as a baby in a manger the Son of Man, the suffering servant, the crucified Savior. This is not the same Jesus. This is the Jesus who comes as King of Kings and Lord of Lords with great authority, who will ride eventually a white horse and defeat the enemy. And, I mean, he is going to be in charge. So that's what he is leading up to here with this sword analogy. My authority is greater than than the political authority of this day. And he could ride right into the United States of America this morning and say that very same thing. It doesn't matter who's president of the United States. It doesn't matter who all these uh, politicians are in Washington, D.C. 
Jesus' authority is greater than any. And they don't have any power over him. And the interesting phrase he used there in that first couple of verses is, where Satan has his throne. We were talking about thrones with Jeremiah the other day. And Jesus is saying here that there's a throne room in the city and Satan is sitting on it. A reference probably more to emperor worship or the worship of man. What do we call that today? The worship of man. Humanism. Humanism. And that's a very serious thing uh, in society today uh, is this idea of humanism where it's all about the man. So there's also a reference to the corrupt political system of immorality and poor ethics. And it may also have included the many cults such as the healing cult that we mentioned, uh, Zeus, uh, his huge altar, and all these other things going on uh, where, in other words, these were all part of Satan's domain. So Satan has a place, as Jesus is saying, in this city. So we need to recognize that evil has its grip on world systems. We need to recognize that and understand that. Uh, And in those places, God is mocked and Satan rules. And we have areas in our own country where we see this coming more and more to life. Uh, the area of abortion, uh, where it's part of the world system, but God is mocked when life is taken. And Satan rules in those hearts and lives. Those men and women who are part of the abortion mills will one day stand before a God with authority and will be responsible for what they've done and have to take responsibility for the murder of those millions of babies. I wonder, I I think I've said this before in a Bible study, but, and maybe it was at church, maybe it was here, I don't know, but I wonder if the real president of the United States was aborted. I wonder if a lot of our congressmen that should have been elected were aborted. I wonder if some of the great, maybe the Billy Graham of this generation was aborted. You know, because of all of these babies that have been killed, you wonder what could have been there? What could have been done? Perhaps they would have been the ones that would have been raised up. And, and instead, we've cut short their lives. The life of the city would have been well sh- uh, shown by the famous Norman Rockwell painting uh, the, a particular picture on, uh, a few years ago, a number of years ago, actually, now, uh, on the Saturday Evening Post. Anybody remember the Saturday Evening Post? Remember that magazine? And it used to always have a Norman Rockwell on the cover. Uh, A a few years ago, there was one that had a picture of a woman buying a Thanksgiving turkey. And I remember this one distinctly. Uh, She was at her local butcher shop, and she was purchasing her her turkey for uh, Thanksgiving. And it it showed her uh, with the butcher uh, at the scales, weighing the turkey, and both smiling at each other. The, The scene seems wonderful and warm until one looks very carefully into the painting, into the picture. Uh, Looking at the hands very carefully. When one studies the painting, one knows the butcher has a finger on the scale, you know, to make it weigh 
you know, pushing it down to make it weigh more while the woman supposedly isn't looking. You know, they've got the smile on their face and, you know, yeah, greeting. And he's got his finger on the scale where the woman can't see. And the woman has her finger pushing up on the bottom of the scale, you know, nodding to the butcher. Oh, yeah, that's a nice turkey. She's trying to get, you know, a little cheaper by getting some of the weight off. It's there. Check it out. Go Google it, right? Google it. A uh, woman buying turkey on Saturday Evening Post. I'm sure that's all. You can put in something like that and you'll see it. But to the casual looker, the picture seems like a pleasant all-American scene of a warm relationship between a faithful customer and a hard-working butcher. But behind the smiles lay the deception. And that's how the world is. And that's how it creeps into the church. Too often, that's... That's the way things just kind of evolve in our churches. They kind of ooze in. We were talking about oozing into the kingdom. Well, evil also at times can ooze into the church. The danger is to accept this kind of behavior. Just a little. And just a little. And just a little. And these subtle deceptions are the stuff that we call compromise. Compromise. And eventually, what compromise can lead to is real loss. Because we begin to sometimes compromise things we shouldn't compromise. And that's when we get ourselves in real deep trouble. To this church's credit, they have done well so far in keeping a clear moral path. And they're commended in their faith for this. There has been a separation. They had not compromised yet. But the seeds were there. And, and soon, if they didn't do something about it, uh, the, these things would begin to infiltrate even deeper into the life of the church. They had remained faithful so far, even when one of their own was put to death. Uh, it's re, his name here is uh, given to us. His name was Antipas. And his, that name means against all. The name Antipas means against all. This church member had been a man unwilling to compromise And his witness had guided them to keep a straight path. But with Antipas gone, other elements in the church were arising with the teachings of compromise. These enlightened members, (laughs) that's in quotation, if you weren't watching, it's enlightened members, were encouraging acceptance of ungodly standards in order to avoid clashes with the community. Uh... Probably not, you know, with the, under the guise of just not wanting to offend. Just, you know, not wanting to, to uh, maybe make a, a, an offense at, that would cause someone not to want to be a Christian or whatever. And, that, and I heard a terrible illustration. It's been a number of years ago now. They did a special on ABC News. And they, were talk, they, they did different churches, different types of churches, uh, uh, I think it was a Reformed church up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which was old style, you know, rit- more ritualistic. And then they did some of the more modernistic churches. In one particular church, and if I remember correctly, the pastor wouldn't even come on and be interviewed on the program, but they removed all the symbolism. No crosses, no doves, no anything Christian in, in their sanctuary because they didn't want to offend anybody if they came in. Well, the fact is, Paul says, the cross is an offense. (laughs) 
And you know what? I don't care if it offends somebody. It is what it is. What it is. And Jesus died there for our sins. And it doesn't, it's not wrong to use that symbolism, uh, I don't believe. But we have a tendency not to want to offend people. And so we kind of, you know, soften the gospel. You know, kind of take the sting out of it, I guess, or something. I don't know. Uh, but we need to be careful that we don't compromise uh, just because we don't want to offend. The trouble with this mentality is it just doesn't work. <coughs> if we are just like the world, then there's no reason for the world to change. And we talked about it a little bit yesterday. We're just a social club. The trouble with fighting fire with fire is that even more stuff gets burned up. C.S. Lewis, the great writer, and I've, uh, since I retired, I've read, I think, two or three of his books, and they're interesting. He's, he's different. Um, but one of them was uh, actually his conversion. I think the title of, I remember correctly, is Surprised by Joy. And it's the book that has to do with his conversion. It talks about his early life and, and some of the things he went through that led up to his conversion. And uh, the last part of the book then is, is uh, kind of explains the title, Surprised by Joy, because he, in a way, did kind of ooze into it, but then, there, but then there was a conversion experience in his life. But he once said that no clever arrangement of bad eggs will make a good omelet. And we can't win the loss by using unethical and immoral standards. And we can't make the gospel more attractive by being like the world. we got to be like Jesus. So, the second thing we see is compromise. Look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So, the first thing we see, that God has some concerns about this church, where they are heading uh, to point out this concern now, before they lost their testimony, was giving them the chance to do something early before damage occurs. To prevent, in other words, stumbling. God loves us enough to challenge us early. He's trying to get it resolved before it has worse effects. So the issue God has with the church was the, their willingness to hold to the, to the teachings of Balaam. And that's the reference to the Old Testament prophet who was hired by the wicked king Balak of Moab to curse Israel. Well, the curse didn't work. So this, called, uh, this so-called prophet, Balaam, shared with the Moabite king how Israel could be corrupted and have God himself, God himself judge them. They wouldn't have to be uh, cursed. And uh, that would be almost as good as uh, putting a curse on them, he said. So the plan was to send Moabite women down to the camp of Israel and flirt with the Israeli men and getting them then to partake of unkosher food and also commit immorality with these Moabite women. So once they had flirted with these Moabite women, God would come down on them in judgment because they weren't allowed to do that. They weren't allowed to eat unkosher food. They weren't allowed to, to perform acts of immorality. But 
So Balaam knew God wouldn't curse them, but this judgment would take them out of commission for a while and allow the Moabites to continue. And unfortunately, it worked. (laughs) And fortunately, it worked. His plan worked. So the issue was simple. God's concern for this church included some within the congregation that wanted to get rid of teaching about sin. (laughs) We might as well get out of the business. We're not going to talk about sin because that's what we need to cure. And we have the healer. It's dangerous to compromise. A Russian parable goes like this. A hunter went into the woods to shoot a bear for a fur coat. When he found a bear and was about to shoot the bear, startled, uh, the bear startled him by speaking to him. <laughs> you ever had that happen? Out in the woods? Well, the bear in a very gentle voice said, isn't it better to sit down and talk this through? (laughs) Maybe we can come to some agreement or compromise. So they sat down and the bear asked the man, the hunter, he says, what do you want from me? And the hunter said, I want a fur coat. (laughs) That's what he came out to hunt for. He wanted a fur coat. So then the the hunter asked the bear, what do you want? And the bear replied, a full stomach. (laughs) Well, the bear then said, good, I think we can help each other out. So soon the negotiations were over and out out of the woods came the bear alone. The bear had a full stomach and the hunter had a fur coat. You see, compromise rarely satisfies both parties. But they had, they had another group. I, I know that was terrible. I'm sorry. They had another group with a similar philosophy. They were free from sin's power, therefore they could do anything, even sin. How about that one? They were free from sin's power. This is a, another cult, another philosophy. Free from sin's power, so they could do anything, even sin. This group was called the Nicolaitans. And I probably don't pronounce that right. How would you pronounce that, Jeremiah? Okay. Pronounce it like Jeremiah. And that was probably named after their main teacher or the one who started the cult. But it, be, but it, be, it came into the church, this cult ministry. Uh, and this teaching emphasized the freedom. I put that in quotes again. The freedom in Christ Paul had taught, but it took it to the extreme. So this group basically was pushing freedom above restraint. And like some today that talk about us being a free country, uh, a free country that's riddled with pornography and hate speech and bullying, uh, it it should be freely expressed, uh, but it can't be to the point where it puts us in bondage. Freedom without limits is not freedom. Freedom without limits is not freedom. When a man is released from prison, he's not free now to do whatever he wants to. He's free now to obey the law by his choice. And if he uses his newfound freedom to break the law, he will find himself back in prison again. So it is with Christ. When we were set free from sin, we were freed so that we can keep God's laws. The ones the kids sang about yesterday. Those Ten Commandments. And not disregard Him. 
To break God's laws will only send us back into spiritual bondage. Christians that think they're so spiritually strong that they can break uh, God's laws are fools and will end up in spiritual bondage again. And this was Paul's argument in Galatians. Uh, We're free to serve Christ, not sin. And it would be sad if the folks... If, if the folks in our church encouraged each other to start living again like those in the community who were living in immorality. You see, Christ's power to deliver would then be mocked. So it's not that type. We're not talking about freedom to do anything we want. We're talking about freedom from sin. The next thing we see is in verses 16 and 17, the, uh, the conviction Repent, therefore. We, we've, we've seen that before, that uh, emphasis, that command to repent. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let, him he, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Interesting, an interesting promise there, isn't it? The first thing is to repent. The switch needs to be made. Repent, therefore. It's, it's strong language. It's emphatic language. It's a command. The time to change was right now before damage occurs. The church would continue to slide if it continued to compromise. The time to repent was now. It was very uh, straightforward, not a debate on philosophy. Uh, uh, The idea was to turn around. So the tone is emphatic, and, and if the tone, the command is emphatic, then the action needs to be emphatic as well. And so the threat in the verse was that if they ignored dealing with these teachers of compromise, God would deal with them. How? He says, the sword. The authority... uh, uh, the, the reminder again of what the governor had, that, that uh, sword of authority he had, which was uh, t- to kill anyone at will. Now he's talking again that he possesses the sword. The idea was God's judgment because there is reserved uh, heaven for those who follow Christ, but there is also hell and judgment for those who ignore. So... Uh, They needed to turn around. They used to, the the shepherds used to break the leg of a wayward sheep. If it wouldn't come when it called, when it was called, it was often leading the other sheep astray. When I was a teenager, we had a at the time, we did a lot of things together in the community of Delray with the three churches. And one of the things we did uh, was we had kind of like a little teen retreat. And one of the days, we went out to Brandon's farm, and they had sheep. And I'd never, I'd never really paid any attention. I'd seen them from afar, but never been where sheep were on the farm. And it's, I don't know if you've ever watched, just go out sometime to a sheep farm and watch sheep. You've probably seen them out there in Indiana. It's if one sheep jumps, there might not even be anything there to jump, any reason to jump, but if it jumps, they all jump. Yeah, if, if one runs, they all run, they follow. And so the shepherd, when he has a wayward sheep, realizes that what they'll do is 
if, if that sheep would jump off a cliff, they'd all jump off the cliff. And so they would break the leg of that wayward sheep. And after healing, though, that sheep would be the model sheep. After that leg was healed, that sh- the sheep would be a model sheep. That's why they did it. Staying close to the shepherd. And then also leading the other sheep to do the same. We need some, we need some model sheep, don't we? I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of scared of the... And I know it's used even in scripture of the pastor being the shepherd. I don't, I'm not sure I'm qualified. Because Jesus is the shepherd. And so maybe I'm just a model sheep. And I should be leading my people to the good shepherd as a model sheep. Because God had to do some breaking in my life to get me where I needed to be. I don't feel like a shepherd. I feel like a wayward sheep that the shepherd took under con- and got under control by breaking some things in my life. And causing me to get closer to the shepherd. And then leading my people right to him. And so, I don't know, I know it's in the scripture. It talks, I think Peter uses that illusion that the pastor is like a shepherd. But I, would, I think I was just a dumb sheep like the rest of you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> maybe, maybe you don't like that illustration. Thanks for the illustration. But... Uh, but I know there were things in my life that God had to, to take care of before I could be any kind of leader. And uh, that's, what, that's why they did that. And Jesus, again, used all these illustrations that were, it hit home to them because it was things around them. And so to those who heard, God promises hidden manna. So what, was, what's man, what is that? So what does that mean? What's that? It's a blessing, but what, what would be the hidden manna? How about, wouldn't it be the bread of life? The bread of life, the word. Yeah, the word. And so God promises them something better than material bread, bread that will feed and nourish the spirit. It will, it will satisfy our hungering hearts. And so not only will the hidden manna nourish them, but God's presence would make up for the loss of this world's presence and the things of this world. They wouldn't be alone. Then we see this phrase, the white stone. Uh, It may have been the Tessera Hospitalis, uh, a white stone that was broken in half. Each party wrote their own name on on their piece of the stone, and then they would exchange it with each other. The, the meaning was a new name given them, that of their host, because they would switch around the name with each other. So if they presented the piece of white stone with their host name, they were entitled to everything their host owned. Pretty good, huh? <laughs> when we receive our new name, we have entrance to all the glory and the blessings of our brother, Jesus. (laughs) Right in, we can go right in to the Father's house because we've received a new name. Another possibility was the verdict stone. Anybody know what the verdict stone was? 
The verdict stone was used in a court of law. And uh, remember, this was a political capital, so it might, it might have more to do with what this phrase is talking about because of Jesus using illustrations that were about what was going on in the city. It's a possibility uh, that it might have been this uh, verdict stone uh, in the court of law. If a person was being tried by a jury or judge, they would be presented with one of two stones at the end of the trial. If declared not guilty, they would be presented a white stone. If they were guilty, they would be given a black stone. That's the way they presented the verdict in their courtrooms. So the new name seems to push the first possibility, and maybe he was using both, kind of combining the the two types uh, of activities things that they would be familiar with and understand together with with this uh, new name. But Jesus offers us his best friends, a Tessera Hospitalis. All that is his is ours. All that is his is ours. And he declares those who hear in the church not guilty if they respond. They receive a white stone. The call to compromise with this world and adopt their standards and ethics must be resisted by the church of Jesus Christ. We are to adopt standards of righteousness. The pressures to be like the world are real and powerful and sneak up on us if we we don't stay on guard. We need to watch. We need to take inventory. We need to be prepared. So the pressures to compromise our faith are all around us. We're... We're in just as bad a shape in that area as the church at Pergamum, obviously. There's all kinds of things out there that would cause us uh, or would try to get us to compromise our faith. The church in Pergamum was in a gradual process of becoming worldly, and I believe the church as a whole in this country is progressing towards being worldly, more and more worldly. And unchecked, this process would dim their fire and witness for God. Already they were tolerating in the church the teachings of indulgences. And it wouldn't be long before the practices that followed. Which direction, the question this morning is this, which direction is your life moving in? Are we turning away from the compromises or are we leaning towards them? Anybody have any thoughts or comments or questions this morning?
Yeah, it, and that's what he, he was saying. Let's if if you don't, I'll have to do something about it. If you don't, if you don't ask him to leave, I'll have to do something about it because I, I can't tolerate it. But we do. We sometimes tolerate things God wouldn't tolerate, and that's what happens. We get families that run churches, and that sometimes that they you know they may be the cult. They may be the you know that group that's that G, that Jesus was talking about here. You know, if you don't get rid of them. Either the, uh, the church will go, or I'll have to get rid of them. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, it's, it, it is. It's you, you were exactly right. It says them, because it, again, again, when he addresses them, he says, for the most part, you've kept your faith. You've kept your faith. You've held on despite this infiltration. But if you don't do something about it, it's not going to be good. You know, we got. You know, we we're afraid to take action too many times. When you know when we run into these situations again, but going back to we don't want to offend anybody, but Yeah, it's not a repent like from sin because these, they weren't sinners. You're exactly right. They were. He was addressing the church, the faithful, you know. But what he was saying is, we've got to turn, you know, from this compromise. We've got to repent from the compromise, from allowing this infiltration, and that I think that's it. Reorientation may be a good word for it. Well, yeah, you can't. Yeah, either you either need to get it right or get out. It's basically what.
Yeah, I could, I mean, these televangelists, I could sleep through that every week. See, in a church like that, in a church like that, then you're not going to have this problem because they won't have an opportunity to infiltrate. So, you know, that's, you know, they only, they only, yeah, they only have an opportunity to infiltrate if we allow them to. And that's when we begin to compromise. So that's where we have to be careful. The thing, one other, one other thing, I, I was a 70s college person, <laughs> and I, uh, I, would, I went a year and a half to Mount Vernon, uh, Nazarene College at the time. I, if I if had enough money and stayed, I would have been in the first graduating class, but I wasn't even sure what I was supposed to do in my life at that point. So I, I dropped out and went, and went to work. But in, in my course on life and work of a minister, our instructor, who was an interesting dude, Reverend Young, he was Reverend Youngman at the time. I think he eventually became Dr. Youngman. I think he's passed away now. But uh, our textbook was Brethren Hang Loose. <laughs> so remember, 70s now, okay? But I, the one thing I remember about the book, and probably the reason I kept it on my shelf for so long was, because I don't think I ever read the whole thing. But anyway, um, <laughs> uh, the one thing it said in that book, that sometimes a church has to split in order to grow. You know that's come. You got to get rid of the. You got to get rid of the Nicolaitans. You got to get rid of the the other stuff that's preventing the growth. And so I, I don't like that idea, but it's probably true. <laughs> so brethren, hang loose. <laughs> Do God. God will. Pro, he promised us the white stone. <laughs> Whether it's because our name of our name being written and what we have inheritance or whether it's because we're not guilty, he promises us the white stone. If we continue to remain faithful, but we deal, we deal with what we need to deal with. Thank you, everybody.